Thank you, Andrea. Uh, well, this is the um, uh, fourth and uh, final sermon uh, in this little series of sermons on the book of Galatians. Um, I uh, intend to come back to Galatians early next year, the Lord willing, and look at all the bits that I haven't looked at this time around. Uh, but for me, uh, it's um, been uh, great fun. I hope it has for you as well. But it's been tremendous fun to actually approach preaching a book by not going through it in order. Uh, and that's meant that we could, um, you know, we could sort things out and work out what's going on, try to figure out what, what, what had prompted this letter from Paul to a small group of churches in southern central Turkey, uh, as it would be known today, the Roman province of Galatia. And what we've seen so far in this series is that this is a letter that is all about the gospel, uh, the good news message from God. It's about repentance and forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son. It's also a letter all about justification, right living before God. Now, as, as we've seen in, in this series of sermons, that that word, justification, it's a tremendously important word. But it can be used by different authors in different ways uh, when we come to the Bible. And it can be used by the same author in different ways, depending upon context and occasion. But in our context right here and now, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, the word righteousness is essentially about what a right response looks like in practical terms. What does it look like to be right with God? Or to put that uh, uh, very question into our language, that question might become something along the lines of, what does authentic Christianity look like in practical terms? And this was suddenly, for those churches in, 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 uh, in Galatia, an incredibly important question. Because a new teaching had begun to gain traction. A new teaching, possibly imported uh, by way of a few men from Jerusalem. And this new teaching added to Paul's message of justification through faith in Jesus Christ. And their answer to the question of what authentic Christian Christianity looked like in practical terms, their answer was this. Authentic Christian spirituality must include circumcision of all males, Sabbath-keeping every Sabbath, and observing Mosaic food laws, keeping kosher, in other words. And their message was this. If you're not doing this stuff, you are not right with God. For Paul, however, this message was a disaster of the highest degree. He, he understands that really what they're talking about actually is a form of slavery. And the genius of this letter is that Paul articulates for them and therefore also for us how it is that by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified by that very faith. And last week, we, we saw how Christians, Christians don't have to obey the law of Moses. Not in the, not in the old sense. 
not in the sense of our righteousness, not in the sense of our belonging to God, being dependent upon it. Of course, sin is still sin, and the word of God is still the word of God. But our relationship as the new covenant people, our relationship with Holy Scripture is qualitatively different to that of the Old Testament people of God. Something that the prophets foresaw and longed for. So then, with respect to Bible obedience or Torah observance or law-keeping, we've been set free. We are no longer slaves, but children. And so Paul makes a wonderful conclusion at the start of chapter 5. It is for freedom that we have... Uh, sorry, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And uh, Paul then takes... 12 verses to mark out the cardinal importance of not going back to circumcision and Torah obedience as a way of trying to be right with God. And then in verse 13, he circles back to that point, freedom in Christ. Verse 13, and by all means, it might be useful if you have your Bible open. Um, if you don't, that's fine, but uh, I encourage you to do so if you, if you have one on your lap uh, or on your phone. Um, verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. Um, free, freedom, liberty. In, in America, as you may have noticed, freedom or liberty is highly prized. And it's defined as the ability to do precisely whatever it is you want. And no one can tell you, for example, to wear a face mask or to not wear a face mask. Because that's liberty. That's freedom. That's not what Paul is talking about here, though, is it? The freedom that we have in Christ is the liberty and ability to do what others want us to do. What an extraordinary idea. The freedom that we have in Christ is the freedom to serve one another humbly in love. In other words, to not do what it is that I want, what I want to do. That's the freedom we have. Um, and so we start hearing about an important concept for Paul, the flesh, an important idea. He uses the word flesh 18 times in this letter. Uh, it's a key word. In fact, he finishes the letter by talking about flesh. Verse uh, 17 of chapter 6, an incredibly important verse. Finally, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear the marks of Jesus in my flesh. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Um, uh, an incredibly important verse. Um, um, we'll get there one day, hopefully. Uh, but flesh, it's, it's, it's peppered with the word flesh. Chapter 1, verse 16. Flesh and blood means human beings. Uh, Paul's message comes not from flesh and blood, not from human beings, but from, from God by way of direct revelation. Similarly, all flesh, chapter 2, verse 16, is all humankind. Chapter 2, verse 20. The life I am now living in the flesh, Paul says, um, and he's talking about his current, this world, bodily existence. Chapter 4, Paul twice speaks about a weakness of his own flesh. 
What does he mean? Well, he's talking about an illness or a disability, an affliction, a spec to, to speculate, an affliction of his eyes. Um, he had problems with his eyes, it would seem. Uh, later on in that chapter, Paul will talk about some children born of the flesh as opposed to some children born of a promise. In other words, flesh as a word now comes to mean, uh, now comes to refer to human will, initiative, and purpose. Promise referring to divine will, initiative, and purpose. So um, we've got four meanings of the word flesh already all from the same author and the same document. It would be entirely reasonable. I put it to you, it would be entirely reasonable for us to be just a little bit confused, at least initially, by what Paul means by this word, flesh. Um, however, in chapter 3, verse 3, and in chapter 4, verse 29, and in the six places that we're going to look at today, the flesh, whatever that word might now mean, is clearly in opposition and the opposite to the spirit. Flesh and spirit, in this context now, are things that are opposed to each other vehemently. One or the other can't be both. And this is a key concept for Paul. Verse 13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And perhaps, uh, indeed, uh, in order to build anticipation, Paul doesn't explain flesh, but actually, uh, for the next couple of verses, he focuses on what it means to humbly serve one another in love. Verse 14, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. Um, perhaps you, uh, like me, have uh, come across uh, this verse before and been perplexed by it, because you know it's wrong. Um, because we all know that actually the first and greatest commandment is this, that, that actually the, the, the law is summarized uh, and fulfilled in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That, that, that's, that's where the law is fulfilled. Um, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So, you know, the first time we might read this, we might go, that's confusing because I know Paul is wrong. But hopefully now we all understand his context that what he's talking about is what authentic Christianity, authentic Christian spirituality looks like in practical terms. He's not talking about necessarily what we might call spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, tithing, church attendance, Bible reading, etc. He's talking about the practical outworkings of righteousness in community. The horizontal plane, if you like, rather than the vertical plane of discipleship, if you get what I mean. And if you were here last week, you might remember that I spoke about how sin makes us with respect, sin makes us with respect to this vertical plane, it makes us rebellious unto God, and with respect to that horizontal plane, predatory 
with respect to each other. Like rats in a barrel, we all turn to cannibalism if we don't understand life in the Spirit. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit to what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever, so, sorry, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Uh, it would have been very, very easy uh, for uh, Paul's um, uh, Greco-Roman, Greek, Gentile, uh, pagan audience um, listening to him. It would have been very easy for them, uh, coming from their particular worldview, it would have been very easy for them to, to, to misunderstand what Paul meant by the flesh. Um, and it's a misunderstanding that continues to beleaguer and, 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 um, and plague us as well. And the misunderstanding is this. Oh, when Paul talks about the flesh, he means bodily appetites and any desires pertaining to this world and our present physical existence. We immediately assume that if we want it or desire it, it must be wrong. With respect to bodily appetites, we turn to asceticism, denying all forms of pleasure and indulgence. With respect to passions and desires, we immediately assume that my interest in cars or uh, your interest um, in art or his interest in cooking or uh, uh, her interest in making money uh, or their interest in fashion, we immediately assume that, that this, is, this is this worldly and therefore hatred unto God. Paul counters all such thinking with a quick common sense description. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. Um, that's what's called a vice list. Um, and it will shortly be followed by a list of virtues. Um, vice lists are common in the Bible. You might have noticed there was a 12-point vice list in Mark chapter 7 that Andrea read to us. Vice lists are common in Paul's letters. There are at least 11 of them. None of these lists are ever intended to be comprehensive. For example, there's no mention in this one of covetousness, greed, or lust. Um, after all, Paul concludes this particular vice list with and the like. It's not comprehensive. However, whenever we do encounter a vice list, we can assume it's not comprehensive, but we can assume that it has been tailored, that, is, that it is tailor-made for the occasion. Seven of these vices sound like a description of Greco-Roman pagan society, at least as it would appear to Jewish ears or Jewish eyes. 
sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, drunkenness, and orgies. Things that no self-respecting Jew would ever have anything to do with. Cross to the other side of the street. Such things are scandalous, gross and immoral, evil parading in broad daylight without even an attempt at disguise. That sounds like the, the pagan world, if you're a Jew. Eight of these vices, however, on the other hand, sound like the Jewish world, or at least in the ears of Gentiles. Hatred, discourse, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Paul could be talking about a meeting of the Sanhedrin, couldn't he? Pharisees and Sadducees and, and, and Herodians all at each other's or at each other and at each other's throat. Or it could be a town council meeting in Jericho. We, we might think of acts of the flesh in terms of gross immorality. But Paul is not at all subtly showing us that acts of the flesh can be found in high concentration in places that otherwise might be labeled respectable society. It's just as contaminated. It's just as as, 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 as fleshly. These acts, works, deeds of the flesh, so typically uh, found in, uh, these are so typically found in people who cannot tell the difference between being religious and being righteous. Um, and in a sense, that's what Mark chapter 7 was all about. People who cannot tell the difference between being religious and righteous. But to conclude our thinking on what the flesh means here, Paul does not have in mind physical or bodily appetites or normal human desires connected to our own well-being, but rather what he means is actually precisely all of those things, those very same things, when sin rules in our hearts. When, when we make other people commodities or things in order to devour them, Consumers consuming people for the sake of their own selves. Our sinful nature, our unregenerate self. Paul continues, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, questions or comments about inheriting the kingdom of God in the New Testament usually relate to the question of eternal life. Paul is saying those who live like this forfeit eternal life. They are not inheritors, but rather they are disinherited. And here and now comes uh, the appearance of contradiction into Paul's message. On the one hand, Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf, taking away the curse on the cross. Our belonging as children of God is not conditional on behavior or performance. It's not performance-based acceptance. And indeed, in the two other letters where Paul uses this same language of not inheriting the kingdom of God, immediately after issuing such a warning that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God, he immediately says, oh, but I don't mean you. On the other hand... Jesus in his teaching and Paul in his make it abundantly clear that not everyone who calls Jesus Lord 
will inherit eternal life. But only those who are obedient, doing the Father's will. What, what, what are we to make of this apparent contradiction? Well, briefly, for the question deserves a much fuller treatment than we have time for now, briefly, the gospel is, first of all, a call to repentance, which means, in essence, a turning to God and away from everything that we now know is unchristlike. To live an unrepentant life is to show that, in actual fact, that person doesn't believe the gospel at all. So the word unrepentant is another way of saying unbeliever. But perhaps the thing we need to see from Paul's words thus far is that, is that, that really his, his big point is no external written law can ever capture entirely what it means to be in rebellion to God. Something, for example, that is an innocent diversion for one person, a hobby or interest that is a blessing and refreshing, could be for another person an expression of greed and idolatry. As Jesus teaches so powerfully in the Sermon on the Mount, lust and greed and hatred are things to be policed internally if they are to be policed at all. And in the same way, when we now consider what it means to walk in the Spirit, we get a list of virtues. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, once again, when we compare this list of virtues with other such lists from Paul, uh, we see uh, that the list is descriptive, not uh, exhaustive. Um, th this list is uh, sometimes made the subject of a, a sermon series. We might have a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit, and when taken out of context, we tend to individualize, internalize, and hear these things as connected with feelings. But given Paul's argument, we would do well to consider these virtues as describing spirit-led community, not riven by factions, but healed by forbearance. And after reading about the acts of the flesh or the works of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh, we may have been expecting this list of virtues to be labeled uh, good works or spiritual deeds. But instead, we get a rather startling phrase, the fruit of the Spirit. And it's unexpected and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful turn of phrase. It's the only time in the Bible when fruit is linked to the Holy Spirit. Fruitfulness, on the other hand, is frequently linked to human beings right from the start. Genesis chapter 1. We were created to bear fruit and to be fruitful. Fruit that would last. In Genesis 1, chapter 1, that implies babies filling the earth and bringing in the beautiful order of God into a creation left in chaos or still with chaos manifest. Uh, but the Old Testament prophets regularly compared the people of Israel to a vineyard or an orchard. God created Israel, planted Israel, was looking for good fruit from Israel before that was Israel's purpose, 
justice, mercy, and compassion, tender-heartedness towards the poor. The poor, those who cannot survive without the charitable assistance of others, and also to the outsider and the victim. He was looking for good fruit, for that was Israel's purpose, but time and time again he found only bad fruit, murder, injustice, pitiless oppression, theft, and lying. The purpose of human beings is to bear fruit for God, fruit that will last, just as the purpose of a fig tree is to produce figs. It would have been unthinkable in an agrarian Israelite culture to allow an unproductive fig tree to continue to use up the soil. That would have been a liability. That would have put lives in danger. You have to deal with that appropriately but swiftly. You don't allow unproductive fruit trees just to stay there. The whole point is to produce fruit. And we must also, therefore, stand to attention whenever we might hear about fruit in the Bible, for we are being told something of core significance, something primary, because we're being told something about our creation mandate or purpose or reason for being. Why did God bring St. Barnabas Anglican Church into being as a Christ-centered, father-worshipping, spirit-led community? Why? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's why. So, so the phrase, fruit of the Spirit, wonderfully unites that which is human with that which is divine. It's not the spirit that's the tree. We are the tree. We bear the fruit. We are the tree. This takes energy. It requires work. It is work. And it may not happen overnight, but it will happen as we abide in Christ. For we are unable to bear fruit, fruit that will last, without the unrestrained presence and rule of the spirit in our hearts, and our roots must go down deep. Our roots must go down deep into streams of living water. Verse 23, against such things there is no law. He just won't leave it alone, will he? He keeps on coming back to the law. Again, Paul takes the opportunity to demonstrate the utter inadequacy of thinking about the Christian faith as observance to a written code, any written code, even the God-given written code. You cannot legislate love or forbearance. But for the one born of God, for the one born of the Spirit, they don't need to be told, thou shalt not murder or do not covet your neighbor's wife. They don't need to be told if they're born of the Spirit. Paul's point the entire time has been both the necessity and the sufficiency of the Spirit for Christian community living. 4, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Um, on the cross, uh, God crucified sinfulness. 
uh, punishing sinful humanity through its representative, the one upon whom humankind was originally modeled, Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God, the one who was, even though he was the representative, the one who was without sin, the lamb who took away the sin of the whole world. In doing so, God asks us to copy him and to crucify sin. And uh, we know how to do that. Fortunately, they're really good descriptions. We now know how to crucify sin. Begin by uh, shouting loudly, Crucify! Crucify! Then, then we strip it, uh, strip it naked, uh, shame it, strip it of all power and authority, ridicule it mercilessly, deny all of its claims, brutally reject it, nail it to a cross and watch it, enjoy watching it die. That's what crucifixion is all about, isn't it? Um, so selfish ambition or sexual immorality or envy, shame it. It's evil. It's disgusting. Strip it of all power and authority. It will not control me. Ridicule it mercilessly. Selfish ambition, greed, it is so un-Jesus-like. Ridicule it. Deny all of its claims. Selfish ambition promised that it would make me successful. It's a lie. It cannot help me win. Brutally reject it. I renounce all such things. And I dispose and discard of anything which previously I used in order to sow to the flesh, in order to please the flesh. Those who belong to Christ have nailed to a cross the flesh. All appetites, desires, passions, and intentions and designs that are rebellious unto God, predatory unto other human beings. Rather, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Again and again, Christians ask, what does it mean to be a Christian in practical terms? In religious systems, there are always practical steps in order that you might know that you are keeping the rules that you are a practitioner of that faith and that you are observant and therefore righteous. Circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, food laws. Regular attendance at confession and mass. One declaration, prayer five times a day, give to the poor as often as possible, fast once a year, and once in your lifetime go on pilgrimage. These are religious systems, and they give birth to religious communities. To be sure, the Christian faith has its own sacraments and spiritual disciplines. But it would be, as we have seen in this letter, an infinite tragedy if the idea of being a so-called practicing Christian ever took hold. Paul wants to save us from being religious in order that we might live out the righteousness that is ours as a free gift, received by faith when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. 
For the gospel isn't about rules, but rather it's a call to live a life in intimate fellowship with God our Father, in the image and likeness of his Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, one God, holy, holy, holy. What does this look like in practical terms? Love your neighbor, walk in the Spirit. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen.